0: Don't want to miss it. All right, so now our main message will be given by Curtis Whiteley entitled The Ethics of Faith: Faith, and Humility. Curtis. Thank you, Owen. Good afternoon. Wonderful as it always is to see everyone here on another Sabbath day. We pick it up, as you he just mentioned, and as you see in the bulletin, the title of this message is The Ethics of Faith in Humility. And so as many of you know, the, this is a series that I began this year. This is our eighth installment of this series, and it's covering the epistle of James. And so today we're going to look at James, the fourth chapter, and the first ten verses. And so I just want to kind of start off, and I was thinking about You know, all the things that James has talked about and what we've discussed in this series and there's so many different things and so many of the ideas kind of play together. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think there could have been a better introduction to this message than what Steve gave with his message on Ecclesiastes and the perspective of Solomon. But as I was just looking at uh, that, that term, humility, just how important humility is in our walk with God, how it's the prerequisite of even understanding our need for God, and it is at the foundation of our relationship with God. As every economist in the world will tell you, we live on a planet with an ever-present reality of what is known as scarcity. Scarcity is a term that maybe you're familiar with, but essentially what it is saying is that we have an unlimited amount of needs and wants and not enough resources in order to fulfill those needs and wants. As we look at the Bible, and as Steve just alluded to, the one thing that we don't have scarcity in is in wisdom that comes from this. And truth that comes from this. That surpasses all things. But in having the wisdom that comes from this. The life that comes from these words. Of the realities that have taken place. Of the things that God has actually done. oftentimes the wisdom comes through seeing the foolishness of man. In other words, the Bible tells us what to do, but oftentimes it also demonstrates not just by telling us, but by showing us what the end result is of choosing not to do what God's Word has to say. There's an interesting thing, and this is kind of going on that topic of humility, because that's what's going to be at the, obviously, the core of what we talk about today. But most of us are all familiar with the passage of Numbers, the 12th chapter, verse 3. It's a passage that's in parentheses, indicating that it really wasn't written by, and if you know who the traditional conservative argument of what's known as the five, first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch, the Law, traditionally we believe that it has been a list of documents that were written by Moses himself. But in parentheses, In Numbers, the 12th chapter, verse 3, this is what it says. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who on the face of the earth. Of course, if you believe like me, and I think most of us would agree, Moses probably did not write that. Hopefully, he didn't write that. Which I'm pretty confident that he did not, especially since in the text, it's in parentheses. But what is so interesting about that passage is the reality that the sin in which kept Moses out of the promised land was an act of pride. A man who is said to have been the most humble person on earth is someone who sinned in a prideful manner that kept him from entering into the promised land with his Israelite brother. Now some people could say, well that's a contradiction. But I don't look at it like that at all. Because I think that the Bible has so many of these different little subtle instances where, in one way, this person is said to be a man after God's own heart. But then just a little while later, we see that person commit murder. Albeit maybe not directly, but indirectly. And so I think what this communicates to us is that even Moses, a man who is said to have been one of the most humble people that ever walked the face of this earth, even can succumb to the weakness of the flesh. And in this case, the weakness of pride. The temptation of pride. There is no scarcity in the biblical narrative of examples of how pride has gotten the best of people that have walked this earth. As Steve just alluded to in his message, talking about all the things that Solomon alluded to, how all things, at the end of the day, you can store up these treasures. And Jesus talked about this. He talked about the same thing that Solomon does, about focusing on this earth. And you can build a kingdom and you can build all this wealth at the end of the day. Even the person that was living in a box. Or shall we say, I don't mean a coffin, but that's what I'm alluding to. Even the person that was living in a little hut made of straw. They're going to the same place as the person who's living in the grand palace. So as we get into this message today, as we see this, I want us to think about that concept of humility. We know there's only one person on the face of this earth that has ever... Perfect, perf- perfectly walked in the most humble way that can ever be seen. And he didn't just do it by going around and saying things that sounded pious and saying things that sounded like he was humble. He did it by acting upon it, which is at the crux of what this series is all about acting upon your faith. So I have two main points today, and we're going to get to those. But first, I just want to open up by letting us read the first few verses of James chapter 4. I was going to read all of it, but I'm going to do something a little different today. I want to pick it up, and I want us to see this rhetorical question that James has. Looking at what we talked about last message on this series, we talked about how James ended chapter 3 by talking about seeking wisdom. Wisdom from above. And we looked at the example of Jesus, an example about how he did not rely on himself. Even though we know that he was The pre-incarnate Christ, even before he became a human being, he still showed us the example of completely relying on God the Father. But verse 1 of James, the fourth chapter, says this, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so as we look at this, we're looking at what James is is introducing to us. And we have to kind of step back and just ask the question, what exactly is James talking about? Because he seems to be talking about some pretty serious things. He's mentioning killing. It's so serious. James talks about rejecting strife and quarrels because... They stem from evil desires. I don't think that's something that we have to really think hard about to just think of examples in our own world and through history how we've seen how humans so often, the one species on this earth, the, the thing that God did in creating this, this world is very interesting because he created man with his, in his own image and gave man dominion and gave... Man, the spirit of man, the spirit of God in the sense of having the ability to reason and to think and to create and to work and build. But you look at all the species that God created, it's the one species. Yes, we see animals do things that seem horrid, but oftentimes it's out of survival. It's out of nature as in, the, in the sense of they do things because it's part of their survival mechanism. Humans are the one species on this earth that with that cognitive ability, coupled with the flesh, the weakness of the flesh, and Satan the devil that rules over this world, that can build up desires, and out of pride, and out of vainness, cut down other people. This term wars and fights comes from the Greek word polimos and makai. Now these words oftentimes signify real physical violence. But here in James... If we look at the New Testament, the most common three times, or when we look at the, the, the New Testament, is three times this term, Akai, is used in the New Testament. And it's almost always denoted as a verbal quarrel or struggle. Think about how often times. I mean, we can think of wars, and we can think of battles, and we can think of all of that stuff that goes on in our world. But how many, especially with the invention of things like the internet and social media, how much quarreling, how much strife is going on in this world, even among our leaders of this country? I know it might sound like something that's unheard of, but every time you turn on the news, you hear the terms, Congress is fighting over the health care bill or Congress is fighting over, or politicians are fighting over investigations. Or they're fighting over a budget. Or they're pointing the finger at this person, or that person, or this party, or that party. We see it all around us. And This seems to fit very well with what James has previously said. Especially when in regards to the tongue. And how serious the tongue is. And James tells us what the cause of these quarrels are, which goes right along with what Steve told us today about the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon. He says they're the result of our desires to fulfill our passions. Our desire to fulfill our passions. The Nets Bible translates this phrase as passions that battle inside you. James uses a very unique device. He says that war in your members, basically those things that are within your members that are battling within trying to of course denote the possibility of us having both internal desires that are carnal and then of course a conscience that's maybe in line with God's spirit we see this all throughout the new testament this this description of war that's within us we see in first Peter the second Chapter, verse 11, talking about, Peter talking about a conflict between a person and their sinful desire. Jesus talks about this at the end of his life. At the very end of his physical life, when he talks about, pray the Father. The flesh, or the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And there's a little interesting possibility in the background of what James is alluding to. And, the, and A little after the New Testament times, there became this idea among Jews and within Judaism that... Essentially that a person's body had 248 members in the body. And there is an evil urge and a good urge that fights for the prominence within us. Now we don't know quite if this is what James has in mind. But I think that we can kind of understand that this is something that the New Testament oftentimes does talk about. And stuff that even us in our personal lives. That we do realize this. We realize that we have been baptized. That we have put off the old man. But the old man sometimes wants to creep back up. That we live in this world that's always trying to get that old man out of us. Whatever James means exactly by this, I think we can all understand that conflict that all of us have. That we have human and fleshly desires. And oftentimes, you've heard of the old adage before, you know, there's two wolves that lives within a person. And you ask the question, which one wins? the one you feed and I've heard people I can't remember quite that have used that analogy from this very pulpit Titus the third chapter let's go there real quick I want to read this as we set this idea up of desires human desires versus the spiritual desires Titus the third chapter verse three says for we ourselves were also once foolish disobedient deceived serving various lusts and pleasures." living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So the New Testament is full of these examples. And when we read what the New Testament has to say, all we have to do is we have to look at the world and we see these desires. We see that we live in a world that's constantly trying to get us to act on our desires. We live in a world, in a country, in a lot of ways. Of course, we're, we're thankful for living in the, the, the country that we live in and, and the things that... This country has been blessed for, but we also know that we live in a world where the promotion of self, the promotion of self-indulgence is essentially at the forefront of what everything that we see. Whether it be advertisements, whether it be marketing, whether it be this product or that product, the philosophy of this world is about self. And right here what Titus talks about, all of us have this temptation, all of us have temptation that we have to fight against when it comes to unrighteous desires. So as we get in to this message, as I mentioned, I have two different points I want to bring to us today. The first one is I want to point out that James is telling us to reject friendship with the world. Let's read verses 4 through 6 of James, the fourth chapter. After this, after James talks about this this idea of the, the, the members within us warring with each other and and fights and quarrels among people within the very church. He picks it up and says in verse 4 Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he who gives grace, he who gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right here, James is telling us to reject the friendship with the world. And he gives us several reasons why. Number one, he's playing on an Old Testament metaphor. That is, those who are friends with the world are committing adultery. We know all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets. We look at the, the book of Hosea and that prophet, and he talks about how Israel... Israel was the wife of God. Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. And by them going after the other gods of the ancient land of Canaan, that they were committing adultery. In this same language we see here in the New Testament. We see the same idea when it comes to the church. The church is wed to Jesus. The church is the bride of Christ. The same idea is being used here regarding the church as it was to Israel regarding God. A little note on friendship here, and and friendship when it came to antiquity. Friendship's just a little bit different in antiquity, in this day and age that we are talking about, than it was, than it is today. Because usually friendship in the ancient world meant something far more than what we consider it to mean here in our Western culture. In this age, it was described as a lifelong pact with people with shared values and loyalties. And in essence, being a friend with someone or something meant lining up and calibrating oneself with that person or entity in thinking, values, beliefs, and longings. And of course, being friends with the world is something that over and over and over again, we are warned not to do. This term world, we see many descriptions of it in the New Testament. the Greek word cosmos. It's the same word that both John as well as Paul used in talking about love of the world, being opposed to the love of God. Paul talks about it in 2nd uh, Timothy. He talks about it in 2nd Timothy 3 verse 4. And ascribes the world as the system of evil controlled by Satan. Including all that is opposed to God on earth. We also know that in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus talked about this. He talks about the world in different ways. But he talks about the idea of mammon. Of wealth. The things that the world holds up in high esteem. As something to be sought after. And he talks about the the love of things, the love of things over God, and about how a person cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve the world. We cannot have one foot in the world and one foot trying to serve God. The idea, of course, is also linked within the book of James here. We'll get to that in a minute. Verse 8, about being double-minded. So the flirt with this world, or to flirt with this world, is friendship and friendship is to choose to commit adultery with this world over and against himself. And we see this over and over again with ancient Israel. And the end result was, of course, the, although not permanent, but the temporary destruction of the nation of Israel. You know, just as an illustration, to be an adulterer, one must be in a present covenant or contract with someone. Usually we think in terms of the idea of being an adulterer, of course, we think of marriage. I mean, that's the way that we think of adultery. You know, Two people get married, and one person breaks that contract by somehow having affection or having an infant, you know, a relationship with someone else. A few years ago, I came across an article that was talking about why women leave the men they love. And in this article, I thought it was really interesting because this article described a very different type of infidelity. It's it's not talking about men who go out and that cheat on their wives, but rather it's talking about men who are in an adulterous relationship and they don't even realize it. The article talks about, you know, the absent spouse, the spouse that's focused on other things other than his wife. Maybe it's the golf course. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's hobbies. The spouse, the husband in this case, was focused on everything else but their wife, whether it's a significant other. And I thought that was interesting because, in a way, that is very true. When you are holding something, esteem, or you're focusing more on that, whether it be something abstract, a hobby, whatever it be, and you're putting that first, it is a type of adultery. Of course we have to work, we have to do things, we have other obligations, that's how life is. But we can just think about how that right there is doing almost the same thing. You are putting something else above your significant other. Interestingly, though, in this article it describes about how most men they never even think about it in these terms. They never even realize, in the case of this article, what they were doing. And isn't that just how it is in our own life when it comes to us and God? I mean, think about that. We think of adultery towards God. We think about, you know, worshiping false idols. We think about putting other gods before our God. In our minds, typically, we think, well, I'm not like bowing down to an idol. You know, I'm not, you know, going and worshiping at another, you know, place of worship that's of another religion. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not worshiping a false god. And that's the thinking sometimes that we can get into. And I think that this is a misconception. Because anything that comes before God, anything that is before our allegiance to God is idolatry. And in this case, here in the book of James, we see an example of individuals that were putting their worldly desires above the things of God that were putting their worldly desires and weren't even considering God in the equation. And they were on a path thinking that somehow that if they could just get this, they were going to be happy. If they could just get this, that they were going to be fulfilled. They were believing in a lie. Another reason we don't want to have friendship with the world is because friendship with the world makes us enemies of God. Not just adulterers, but enemies. We can see this in the illustration that was given to us by James about being an adultery, and we can look back at the nation of Israel, and we can see that over and over and over again, not only did the prophets say that you are committing adultery against God, the one that you have went into covenant with, turn back to the covenant, turn back to the covenant, but also that they warned the people of Israel that they were becoming enemies of God, and that God was going to destroy them. Daniel the seventh chapter. We've all heard of that before talks about the four different beasts that are going to come about within the end times. And we know that in the end these beasts, that fourth beast in particular, that is synonymous that is basically the, you know, what the world is, the world system is going to be brought down. And all who align with this beast, this world system is going to be brought down. We see that these ideas, these things that were these worldly behaviors at least in part, were frequently demonstrated all throughout the letter of James. We see discrimination against people. We see individuals in the church, the people that he was talking to, that were acting like the world and treating people like the world, treating people in esteem according to the way that people should be treated according to what the world says they should be treated. It talks about, here in the book of James, people speaking negatively about each other. And of course, in this present context, it talks about pursuing worldly and selfish pleasures and thus creating strife and conflicts. All of these behaviors demonstrate a rival allegiance, one that sought the carnal will over God's will. What about the context of our lives today? Are we doing things? Are we living a life? Are we acting as agents of the world or agents of God? You know, I've never done this before. They tell you sometimes it would be an interesting little exercise, but it'd be interesting to sit down and each one of us on a personal basis, of course, to log every little thing that we do in a week. How much time do we spend in this activity? How much time do we spend watching TV? While, you know, reading a book? You know, of course, most of us have to work. So that's gonna take a lot of our time. How much time do we spend in our hobby and at the end of the week we look at and log all the things that we do and we just take a compilation and say you know what what do I do the most what's missing likewise we could even put it you know not only do we log the activities that we physically are engaged in but also the things that we think about which would be much harder to do and we just really think are we contributing to this world kingdom and system or are we contributing to the kingdom of God on earth and of course we know God's kingdom is not here yet but we are to live as if it is we are to live as representatives are we living a way that's befitting of our calling and our attitudes and our thoughts our actions what is it that consumes us is it God's desires is it the things of God is it the things above or is it things of this life the desires of our heart. All of us have to ask that question. You know, I was recently teaching on the Roman Empire as a teacher, a history teacher. I get the pleasure of teaching the ancient stuff, which a lot of kids just think is thrilling. They love it. Uh, but we were talking about the Roman Empire, and of course, as you talk about the Roman Empire, one of the big discussions, and this is a huge debate in history, and people have talked about it for years and years and years. In the fact, there's There's more books that have been written on this one particular aspect of the Roman Empire than probably any others, and that is what caused the Roman Empire to fall. And so there's a myriad of things that caused the Roman Empire to fall, but one of the things that historians point to, which was a contributing factor, was the fact that in the end of the Roman Empire, a lot of the armies in which they were utilized were just mercenaries. Basically soldiers for pay, soldiers for hire. They weren't Roman. They weren't loyal to the state, and oftentimes these mercenaries, their motivating factor was their paycheck, not the, you know, the pride of the Roman Empire, not you know the imperial state, but their pocket, their their checkbook. That's what they were focused on, and so this oftentimes would result in. Sometimes they would start fighting each other. This commander would say, "Hey, you know, I'm." How about we take this territory over? We can just kind of forget about the Roman Empire here and fighting for them. We'll just take this territory over and have all of its resources. And so in the end, one of the contributing factors was is that those who were fighting for the empire were really fighting for themselves. They were doing it for a paycheck. There was no loyalty. Whereas in the early days of the Roman Empire, all of the Roman soldiers were typically Roman. They had like an invested interest in the empire, in being Roman. And so I thought that this was very interesting because as I was looking at this, I was just thinking to ourselves, I was just thinking to myself, you know, how often times we see this is the case, a case of where loyalty is being shared between two different things. Loyalty to self, loyalty to the world, loyalty to our desires versus our actual loyalty to God himself. And how that can sometimes get us off track. Now, God's church will never die out we know that that's a promise God's church will never die out but we have seen unfortunately through time organizations aspects parts of God's church have allowed their light to go out no reference whatsoever to our context but just simply looking at how it's easy sometimes to think of in terms of you know we're God's church we're you know Christians we follow God and think that none of this could ever happen to us you know, it's easy to look at the Old Testament examples. That was Israel. But sometimes we have examples right here in the New Testament where actual Christians were slipping and doing things. You know, we read on the news, we, 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 whether it be in print, we, we watch stories on the news, and we watch all these horrible things that are happening sometimes. And something that struck me in the last few years is just how, how, how often these things that are happening, sometimes they're happening like uh, people that are supposed to be preachers or ministers that are like doing horrible things like murdering their spouses or you know committing like heinous crimes and so what we have to realize is is that none of this is above us as Christians we have to be vigilant we have to be careful because friendship with the world is something that is easy to do especially since we have to live within the world so my second main point gets us into what I think is the most practical James does not leave us with nothing he doesn't say hey don't be friends with the world because you're adulterers that makes you an enemy of God he says do these things essentially so in my second main point which is the core of what I want to get to us today is that we must use the resources available to us and James outlines some of these resources let's read verse 7 Verse 7 says, of James chapter, chapter 4, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Doesn't seem very positive, does it? These things that he's telling you to do but this passage starts off by giving us the key ingredient the key resource we have is humility james says that but he gives grace more grace therefore he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble all of these things that are outlined for us require humility proverbs Third chapter, verse 34, says this. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. You know, oftentimes we associate the idea of humble, especially when it comes to the New Testament and the biblical narrative, with those who are poor. You see, people who are poor, it's hard for them to really, you know, think that they're self-sufficient. Whether they be a beggar, whether they be someone that has to constantly rely on someone else. For sustenance, there's no other recourse. Those who are forced to rely on God because of their situation, there is no other choice, and that's all of us. There's no person on this earth that's self-sufficient of their own on their own accord, whether they think so or not. Now, we're not talking about self-sufficient and you know they can make ends meet and they can pay their bills. I'm talking about self-sufficient and giving themselves life. God alone has given us life. Without the kingdom of God that comes from God, this world is nothing. Nothing. This, this whole life is vain, as, as, as Steve just talked about. That is our only hope. So the starting action that enables us to follow and utilize the resources that James here lays out and discusses is humility. Humility. We must recognize first, to humbly submit, which is the first resource. You know, I've said this before, but there's something that is really humbling when you come to that realization in your life. Just exactly who you are and what you are there before God. Let's just think about that. Think about what we are before God without Jesus. sinners something we've heard of our whole life and it is cliche and it's something we constantly hear but we we'll ever think about yes christ of course has forgiven our sins but think about what we are without jesus it's a humbling experience that god his son decided to sacrifice himself to to die for us so though we do not have to bear that in reality it's a humbling thing So the first ingredient is the resource of humility. The second resource is that of submission. Therefore, submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submission. Submission entails placing ourselves under the lordship of God and accepting his authority over our lives, over our will. Not focusing on ourselves, not focusing on our desires, but focusing on the lordship of Jesus the idea in mind and submission to God is God's will over our own. The interesting little tidbit about this Greek word is it means to put in order under. To put in order under suggesting the hierarchy of authority that we must have in our lives. Realizing our place in this life. We think about that idea of submission to God. When we think about that idea of like Jesus' example, for, for, for instance, when he's in the desert. You know, part of that submitting to God is rejecting the other. So you submit to one, reject the other. You either submit to the world and reject God, or you submit to God and reject the world. And a great example of this is seen when Jesus was in the desert. And James right, just said right here, you know, resist the devil and he will flee. And that's exactly what we see in the example of Jesus. He goes unto the desert, and as he's fasting, the devil comes to him, and he tries to get him to stumble. And that whole time, Jesus is having to rely on God for everything. He's having to rely on God to sustain him physically. No food or water for 40 days? That's unheard of. Let's think about this. Jesus was a real human being living on this earth, We do it for 24 hours. Some of us might do it more because we fast, but think about how difficult it is come 6 o'clock, 6.30. And then 7 o'clock comes around, and we're just sitting there at that point sometimes watching the clock. And everyone's different on that. Think about 40 days, and Jesus has to rely completely on God, and he resists the devil. You see, the interesting thing is, is that we might think that Jesus is at his lowest point during that period of time. He's without food and water for 40 days. He's out in the wilderness. He's dealing with the elements. But right there, relying on God in that moment, he was completely sufficient, especially when it came to resisting the devil. And what we saw was, is the devil actually flee, flee, flee to him. At the heart of Satan's agenda and his desire, is his desire to get us to doubt, deny, and disregard, and ultimately disobey God's word to submit to this world. And I think a lot of the evidence in the biblical record demonstrates that a lot of times the danger in this, I think that we can think of this in situations that we've been in, the danger is is when we are doing things where we are actually submitting to the world and we don't even realize it. That we are actually submitting to our own desires and we are sinning and it's something that we don't even realize that we are doing. Let's go to 2 Samuel, verse 12, or chapter 12, rather. I want to read this. This just came to me. How forgetful we can be, not only of God's word and the things that we are supposed to do, but how forgetful we can be of our own stumblings, of our own shortcomings, and sometimes convince ourselves, well, I'm not like that person. Well, when I did it, it wasn't as bad because of this, this, and this factor we constantly try to convince ourselves somehow maybe what our sin was wasn't as bad as maybe what the other person's sin was. You know, we read on the news, someone did this, it's so easy to say, oh my goodness, I can't believe that person did that. I can't believe that person, you know, lied about this or lied about that. A congressman lies about something, which is not good, of course. And then like the day before, we lied to our our boss about what we were doing where we took a sick day or something. Now, in 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter, the reason I wanted to read this was because it's a very interesting passage, and many of us have read it before, and it's about when Nathan comes to David to give him this little, I guess you could call it a parable, a story about what what has happened. Previously to this, David has sinned, of course. He's sinned with the sin of Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. He goes off to battle. He puts him in a position where Uriah would be killed because he had gotten Bathsheba pregnant. A little while later, what happens is is that David is, you know, basically living his life. And Nathan comes to him, and it says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There was two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, or which he had bought and nursed. And it grew up together with him and with his children, He ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall, be, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And you shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And right here in this example, David, he's angered at this man who did this. All the while forgetting about what he had done being an example of how easy it is to forget the things that we have done. To humble ourselves and to realize that we're really not as good as we think we are when it comes to maybe following after God and that we have to continually submit to God on a continual basis and reject and resist the world. So what does resisting look like? I just kind of came up with a few points that are more practical in nature than anything. Getting out in tempting situations if we're in a tempting situation, get out of it. Remove it, for our li- remove it from our lives as best we can. Remove it. Do what we can to get out of it. Replace our devotion to things with devotion to God. Set daily time to pray, study scripture, be with other children of God when possible. We still live in a world that is controlled by Satan and we still have to every day come prepared for what the world will bring us. My next little point here, my next resource, is the resource of clinging to God. While we resist temptation, we must cling to God, a natural response to the realization of how much we rely and depend on God after we have humbled ourselves and submitted ourselves to his rule, authority, and will. You know, the language used when it talks about clinging to God is wash your hands, wash yourself, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Cleanse and purify are terms that are associated with the temple, that are associated with the priesthood. This would remind his readers of those ceremonies that went on within the priesthood. The addition of the idea of double-minded man or you double-minded person adds some significance in this because it talks essentially about purity, about blending of elements. We talk about purity. We talk about double-minded man. We talk about people who have kind of a mixture, a mixture of elements. You know, a mixture of elements is the opposite of being pure. When we have something pure, it's just that. It's just the source. It's just the material. It's just the ingredient that we're looking for. When it's mixed with other things, it's tainted with other things. We have somehow an impure, impure, whether it be our hearts, whether it be our minds, whether it be the things that we do. When it talks about our hands, our actions, the impurities. We must purify the mixture of motives and allegiances we may have and humbly submit to God. An interesting little thing in Psalms, the twenty-four chapter, verse 3 and 4 says this. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. All of these things must do the next resource the last one is the resource of mourning not time of day but mourning as in sorrow you might ask yourself how is mourning a resource that we can use mourning is something that is a sign of repentance right after Nathan brought that news that story And reminded David that he was the man in which he was talking about. He is the one who sins against God. Right after that, David wrote the 51st Psalm, or sometime after that, but the Psalm is associated with what he had committed against God and committing adultery as well as committing murder with the story of David and Bathsheba. One of the passages in the 51st Psalm, in verse 17, says this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you would not despise. That's what God desired of David. That's what God desires of us. God desires when we fall, he desires our mourning, our true repentance Not just some physical actions. Well, okay, you know, I did this thing. I want to make sure I go to church every week. I'm on time. I take notes during the sermon. I want to make sure that, you know, I'm always at Bible study. I'll make sure that I sing every single lyric and every hymn. God desires the purity of the heart. He desires the mourning, not because He wants us to be sad. Not because he wants us to go around and just think, oh, I'm so depressed and I'm so horrible. but Because he knows as the creator of us that that is the part, that is the sign of true understanding of what we have done. That's the sign of true repentance. When we are sorry, we are truly sorry. It is sorrowful. It's something that's sincere. And that's how we can tap into the resource of mourning. Let's just consider one more thing here as we close in just a minute. It's a story that we've heard before many times. It's a story of the Philistines and when they stole away the Ark of the Covenant from the ancient, ancient Israelites. And in 1 Samuel. If you read that story, there's an interesting thing that sometimes if you read really carefully that you'll notice. When this happened, the Israelites had no mention of repentance, no mention of seeking God out in prayer. And in fact, what is found at the end of the story is that the Israelites were engaged in polytheism. All they were worried about, oh my goodness, the Ark of the Covenant has has left us. They didn't fall on their knees and say, God, we've sinned. We've obviously not been doing things right, that you have allowed this to happen. There wasn't any talk about repentance. There wasn't any sorrow. But in 1 Samuel, verse. Chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, Samuel says this. And Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you will return to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the band, or from the hands of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the, bell, the, the bells and the asterisks and served the Lord only. A lot of foolish feelings that the Israelites probably had. They're running around. They're maybe doing this. Maybe they're thinking that they had to do this ritual or that ritual. They're serving, you know, idols. They're in a full panic because of the plight in which they are in with the Philistines. And the whole time, all they needed to do was a simple, genuine act of true humility and repentance and mourning. That's what God desired of them. So as we close when the, as we close this eighth part of the ethics of faith and talking about humility, I want us to just think about the things about what James has to tell us. I want us to think about these string of passages, these ten string of passages. Talk about the things that are very practical, the things that we can see in life, that we can see happen whether in our own life, whether it be in the world, whether it be in past experiences. We know we are a part of a tradition, a part of a church. Not this church in particular, but a, you know, a, a history. Well, we've seen you know, strife be borne out within the church of God. And I want us to ask ourselves if we are humbling ourselves before our God. Being humble before God Almighty, I think, is the linchpin of being friends with God. We're to reject the world and submit to God. It is what ensures us that our allegiance with God requires a singleness of mind. And in these string of passages in James 4, or James, uh, James chapter 4, like so much of James, he has presented with us with practical and easy-to-relate scenarios, especially as it relates to our human nature. As we strive to live in humility with God, let us pull on the resources of submission, our cleanness to God, and our repentance, and reject the selfish desires and the friendship of this world.